So uh, Matthew chapter five, we are actually not gonna hit every single verse in Matthew chapter five due to the way uh, the calendar lined out. But what, here's the thing, I say this all the time, context is king. We have to know the context of scripture, otherwise we're gonna use it in the wrong way. And so for us to be able to jump into the passage that we're gonna jump into today, we really have to understand the context that comes right before it and specifically right after where we left off last week. And so we have the Beatitudes, kind of the characteristics of a kingdom-minded disciple. And then right after that, he begins to teach about uh, the salt and the light and how we are called to be that salt and light. And one of you actually shared a, a video with me this past week. I watched it. It was, it was spectacular preaching uh, by another individual. But he made this one point, which I think we need to make so that we can understand why Jesus is jumping into marriage very soon after it. He said this, Assault affects its environment simply by being what it is. Not by saying anything or doing anything, but by being something. And I think what we see in the Beatitudes is that Jesus is calling us to be something. It's not just, uh, hey, do this or say this and this will happen, but the very essence of who you are as a disciple will affect that which is around you, the world that's around you. He actually gave some statistics, statistics, I can't say that this morning, you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, about how if there's a certain percentage of Christians in a community, it actually affects the community in a positive way. Why? Because our very being, a Christ follower, a disciple, affects that which is around us without even saying or doing anything specifically. And so as we understand that, uh, Jesus jumps into some teaching about the law because again, there's Pharisees around and those Pharisees are misunderstanding the law. He gets to uh, verse, excuse me, chapter five, verse 20 says this, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is stopping to make sure they understand, listen, there's this problem, and if you study the Pharisees at all, you'll understand this. Like They knew the law of Moses. They knew it really well. In fact, they were the, the ones who taught uh, the law of Moses to others. But the problem was this. They couldn't live up to the law of Moses. And so because they couldn't live up to the law of Moses, they began to make their own rules and regulations to make it more uh, acceptable for them, something that's doable for them to create their own righteousness and it was all on the outside. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, listen, unless your righteousness is better than theirs, theirs is just external. What he's looking for is internal, right? What Jesus is always worried about is our hearts. He's not worried about our actions because he knows our actions flow out of our hearts. The problem is, is the Pharisees look good on the outside, but on the inside, not so much. And so Jesus lines up and says, listen, your righteousness has to be better than those. And then he gets into teaching, which we're going to look at today in verse 27, teaching about adultery. Now, before we jump into that, uh, we want to make sure that the way that we as married couples um, can actually affect those around us is to model that which God designed marriage to model. Right? God designed marriage to be a microcosm of a bigger picture. And so this morning, this is the, the purpose by which God created marriage. God's purpose for marriage between a man and a woman is to be a picture of the covenant relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. We're gonna talk about that over and over 
uh, in these next couple weeks, but that is the, the design. The design is that husband and a wife would give the same picture of how Christ sacrificed and loved uh, the church, his bride. And so we need to understand that, make sure we have that. That is the basis for us as Christ followers when it comes to our marriage. And so let's jump in here. Uh, Matthew chapter five, verse 27. It says this. You have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good one, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, what I want to do is take a look at just the first uh, verse. He says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. He knew that the people he was talking to would know the seven out of the 10 commandments that you shall not commit adultery. Again, going back to the Pharisees, the Pharisees wanted to live up to that. And so they had created some rules and regulations that as long uh, you know, as you didn't act on adultery, that you were good to go. As long as I don't actually enter into a relationship with someone that's not my spouse, then I'm, f I'm fine, I'm good. And so they've been, they're the teachers. They're the ones that are teaching religious law. And so uh, this is what the disciples have been taught. That's what they thought was what the word of God had said. And Jesus says, no, no, but, but this is what I tell you. But I say that anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, so let me pause for a second because I want to make sure we define lust. Okay, make sure we're all on the same page. Lust is a desire for what is forbidden. An obsessive craving for things that are contrary to the will of God. Uh, kiddos, that might be a new word to you as middle school students. If it is, ask your parents about it at lunch. They'll answer all your questions about it, right? Really, you should be able to be ready to answer those questions, right? This is something that, that you guys as middle schoolers need to understand as well, because as this is, I mean, it's talking to men from the men's perspective, but this is true for you ladies too. And we all need to understand what this means and what it is, because it's important to Jesus. Otherwise he wouldn't take time to actually teach on it. And so what is Jesus trying to get at? Jesus is ultimately trying to get at, listen, I am about what, where your heart is. Like it's one thing uh, for you to act on and have an extra relationship, but it's another thing uh, and, and, and for you to look at somebody. Look at somebody and that is committing lust. And so how does that work? What's that look like? And I thought the greatest thing we could do is go through an example that we find in the Bible. Uh, turn to your Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you know 2 Samuel, you know we're going to the story of David and Bathsheba. I think this is a great example for us to use from Scripture to understand a difference between recognizing beauty and entering into lust, because I think it takes place in this story. And oftentimes when we read this story quickly, we miss it. And then we get to see some of the consequences of when we step into lust. So verse 1 in chapter 11 says this, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. 
They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking around the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to go get her, and when she came to the palace, she, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after her menstrual period, and then she returned home, and later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now, here's how the story unfolds, right? Uh, it's the spring of the year. It's when battle typically took place. Uh, David sends his army with the leader Joab out to fight the Ammonites. Um, and then we're told that David stays behind in Jerusalem. In fact, David doesn't go out like the kings go out. And so David's not where he's supposed to be. We're going to come back to that at the end, okay? So hold on to that, earmark that. We're going to come back to that. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking around the rooftop of his palace. Now, this is, seems like uh, this is a story of like a peeping Tom, okay? Like when you read it, that's what the, the, come to, came to my mind. Maybe it came to your mind. That's not actually what's taking place. Uh, most of the roofs were flat and most of the roofs are, were used as livable space. Um, most countries actually still do, right? We were just in Cuba and every part of that building was used, including the roof, right? And that's where we ate our meals. And so... You walk out on top of a roof and you can see out over the city. You can see other homes. You can see down into like other windows and things. And so here's what David's doing. Is he's walking out, looking out over his city. And then he notices something. He notices a woman who's taking a bath. Now, here's what I would say. Okay. And if you disagree with me, let's talk this week. This is not the moment that David commits sin. To notice beauty is something that God created in us. You notice beauty all the time. You get stopped in your tracks because things are beautiful. You will stop and note that they are beautiful. That is completely, in my mind, that's completely okay to acknowledge beauty, even if it's in another person. Man, that person is beautiful. Okay? I don't believe that at this point that David has committed sin. Now, if you have a pen and you like to write in your Bibles, write a line. This is what I did. I wrote a line right at the right after the period in verse two and right before the three before he in verse three. Because that is the moment that noticing beauty for David turns to lust. Okay, and this is what I want to suggest today. And I, I kind of missed this. I should have said this earlier. Like I believe what Jesus is getting at for us in this whole idea is that, that really when it comes to lust is a lifelong battle of our hearts. It's a lifelong battle of your heart. And I'll continue to unpack that. But this, this battle against lust is something that we're going to, for life, you're going to battle. And so put that line in there because as he could have noticed her and he could have walked away. But instead, what's he do? He sent someone to find out who she was. David's a married man. There's no reason he should send someone to figure out who she is. That's beautiful. It should have been the end of it. It should have been, he should have moved on. Send somebody to find out who she was. So there's his lust, right? His lust entered the game. And comes back, she's Bathsheba. This is who she is. Listen, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Like, it, if he didn't know before he was overstepping his bounds, he should have known when somebody said, the wife. 
This is adultery. This is like you're, you're crossed over. This is what Jesus is talking about. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Like you looked at her and now you're thinking about her in ways that you shouldn't be thinking about her. Then David sent a messenger to get her. He's continuing down the path of lust and sin. When she came to the palace, he slept with her and he finishes the sin. At least we think. If you know the story, you know he's not finished because what happens? She gets pregnant. He sends for Uriah, brings Uriah back from the battlefield. From the place he should be, he brings Uriah back, hoping that Uriah will go to his home, sleep with his wife, and that they can blame the pregnancy on when he came home for more. The problem is Uriah is a better man than David is. Uriah is like, you know what? I'm going to sleep on the steps of the palace because my men are still at war. I'm not sleeping in my bed if they don't sleep in theirs. So David invites Uriah into his palace the next night, tries to get Uriah intoxicated. So hopefully he would stumble back to his home. Uriah still does not do so, even intoxicated. So finally, David is at the point where there's no way out of this, at least for him to see. And so what's he do? He writes the death sentence for Uriah, folds it up, hands it to him and says, deliver this to Joab. He delivers it to Joab. Joab opens it and says, push to the front of the line, put Uriah at the front and then pull back and let him die. That's exactly what Joab does. So David's lust on the rooftop leads to him doing what? Murdering somebody. It sounds a little bit like a passage you might know out of James. James says this, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful action. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Now, here's the thing. If David would have won the battle against lust in his heart, chapter 11 would be two verses. I wrote them. This is mine, okay? This is not scripture. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. In that moment, David left feeling convicted that he wasn't where he was supposed to be, immediately checked his heart, returned to the inside of his palace, packed his bags, and headed out to the battlefield to join his army. End of chapter 11. That's what it would look like if he would have won the battle in his heart. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And then the lust has room to grow, and as it grows, it grows into this full-blown sin. And again, lust is a lifelong battle, because why? Because I just, uh, I believe that it's something that we struggle with continually. All of us, everyone in this room. A desire for something that is forbidden or against or contrary to God's will. So let's go back to the beginning of the story. It says, in the springtime of that year when kings normally go out to war, and then, however, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. See, David was not where he belonged. David was supposed to be out to war. David shouldn't even been in this situation because he should have been with the men that were out battling. And instead, where does David find himself? He's back where he shouldn't be. And over and over when we read this, like that, that is the problem, is being where you're supposed to be. Now, that's not what happens here. And so if you, with me, flip back over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. 
Because here's, a th- here's I'm just going to be a little bit more detailed for a second. For men, it's sexual desire for a woman outside of your marriage. That's typically how lust presents itself, right? For women, it's usually a romance or a, an emotional feeling outside of your husband, outside of your marriage. Like, now, I don't want to overgeneralize, but truthfully, is that, that is most often the way lust presents itself for us as men and women. Not always, but most always. And so going back to Jesus' teaching, Jesus says, how do you win this lifelong battle? <laughs> it's kind of intense. Verse 29. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Is it better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell? And even if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, let me just say this. Jesus is not encouraging self-mutilation, okay? He's not encouraging you to actually gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. How do we know that? Because if you cut out your hand and if you gouge out your eye, there's one thing that still exists. That's your heart. And that's where this battle is. It's not a battle of body parts. It's a battle of your heart. What is your heart set on? Are you winning in your heart the battle against lust? What Jesus is saying is if someone, someplace, or something causes you to lust, cut it off. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Stop. Run from it. Flee. Like it's better for you to lose whatever part of that part of your life is than for your entire being to be thrown into hell. It's not worth having Instagram. It's not worth reading those books. It's not worth going to that place. It's not worth continuing to talk to that person. It's not worth it. So cut it off. Leave it. Throw it away. Get rid of it. And so as I was thinking through this for... uh, Married couples, I just straightforward to you as men, stop being where you aren't supposed to be and start being where you are supposed to be with the spouse that God graciously gave you. Just stop. Don't be where you're not supposed to be. Don't go have lunch where that same waitress takes care of you every single time because you know that's not the place you're supposed to be. Stop. I say this because I understand it. I want to be vulnerable with you. I've gone back and forth all week. My wife and I have prayed about this over and over. But the truth is, when we got married, 16 years of my life, nobody told me lust was a bad thing. 16 years living in lust is, is, takes a while to get past and over. And so when we got married, I had to confess some things and talk through some things with Amanda that I hope none of you ever have to We had to set up some guardrails, checkpoints, things for me specifically. And one of them that I had come up with is, listen, and I told her, this is is exactly how I told her. I said, either I am going to belong to a gym and have a ripped body, and I will struggle with thinking about other women besides you, or I will have a dad bod, and I will focus on you the best I can. You can see what she picked. (laughs) I don't know why you're laughing. I make light of it, but the truth is, I can't trust my heart to walk into a gym. Not because there's anything wrong with that woman, but because my heart's sinful and lustful, and I can't do it. I can't. 
You will never see me on the inside of LA Fitness. It'll never happen. I've cut it off. I don't go there. I don't even think about going there. I cannot do that. So if there's some place, someone or something, men that you need to just get rid of, to cut off, to, to remove from your life, do it because your spouse is worth it. For you young men, I'm talking to you guys, yes, and single men out there, and the same is true for you. The exact same is true for you. Start winning that battle now against lust so that you win it later. Look, I had this false assumption that lust would just go away when I got married. That once I had a wife to fulfill uh, those sexual desires, let's be completely honest, that that would just solve it all. And when I got married and it was still there, I was as shocked as anybody in the world. Why? Because I'm sinful. Because it's a battle of in here. And so if you're a single man or if you're a young man, like start winning that now. Anything that is contrary to the will of God, just cut it off. Stop going there. Don't mess with it. It's like pulling a log out of a bonfire and being like, I'm not going to get burnt when I do this. Yeah, right. Anybody in this room would be like, you're an idiot. You're going to get your, you're going to fry your hand as soon as you grab onto that. The same is true with lust. Don't be like David. Don't linger around it. Leave it completely behind. The same goes for you as married women. Stop being where you aren't supposed to be and start being where you are with the spouse that God graciously gave you. I had to ask Amanda because I'm not a woman. I don't know exactly how this plays out. And so I asked her, hey, you know, you know your ladies, you guys talk about these things. What do you talk about? It's the movies and the books. You know, the romance books that you read and emotionally take you to somewhere far away from your home and your relationship with your spouse. That when you return from those books, you look at your spouse, your husband, and you're like, man, I wish he was more like Romeo, right? What's that do? It, it just takes you emotionally to a place that you're not supposed to be. That God doesn't want for you because your emotions are supposed to be tied into what? To your marriage, to the person who he's given to you. And listen, I'm gonna say this, because guys, it's true. We're big, dumb animals. We don't speak 19 languages like you girls do. So if you think you keep alluding to something towards us, but you're not actually saying the words, we have no clue. We don't. I know it's kind of embarrassing, but men, we talk one thing, one wavelength. Whatever comes out of your mouth is what we take as martial law. You can roll your eyes. You can flip you around and walk out of the, We don't have any idea what that means. Wow, floor must be slippery, right? Like, I don't know what that means. So tell us. Men, be humble enough when your wife says, hey, I need you to take me to dinner more often. I need you to tell me how you feel more often. Be humble enough to say, okay. Because you know what your wife's doing? She's asking you to be the spouse that God gave her. That's your role. You should lifelong be learning how to love your wife, to lead her, to be with her. That's your role. Single ladies, young ladies, the same is true for you. 
If there is something that is not good for, listen, the movies, ask any married couple in this room. The movies are not what marriage actually is, okay? Like that's, that's so far beyond what it actually is, it's unreal. And so watching those and fantasizing about the perfect guy, he ain't out there, all right? He's not out there, big dumb animals. I already told you that, right? So start practicing now to win that battle so that later when you get into a relationship, if that happens, you get into a marriage, like you will already have a head start. Listen, please start doing that now. So one thing I would go back and redo as a high school kid is I try to win that battle more for the sake of that one sitting right there. So please, please try to do that. So here's my question for you. Where are you now that you shouldn't be in order to win the lifelong battle in your heart with lust? Where are you now that you shouldn't be? Men, where are you now that you shouldn't be? Women, where are you now that you shouldn't be? Identify it. Someone, someplace, something, cut it off. Stop it today. Repent, ask God for forgiveness. Share it with your spouse. And listen, go find somebody to be accountable to. You ain't gonna win it on your own. Go find another man to walk through that with. Go find another woman to walk through that with. We need each other, especially when it comes to this. But Jesus, he says, listen, even if you look at them with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It is a lifelong battle right here. And every day you have the opportunity to win it. I have the opportunity to win it. So let's win it for the glory of God. Let me pray. God, we come before you and confess that we lose this battle too often. We know that because marriages inside the church look just like marriages outside the church. Divorce rate inside the church is the same as the one outside of the church. You know that, Jesus, and it breaks your heart. Because that's the one relationship you gave us that models your love for us, the church. And so I just pray, Jesus, that you would strengthen the marriages in this room. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict hearts, that you would humble husbands, you would humble wives, and they would confess things to each other and they would be found grace in the midst of that. I pray that you would strengthen marriages in here for the sake of the next generation, for the sake of our community, for the sake of those that we are in relationship with that don't know you, Jesus. And we know that if the marriages are better within the church, that the whole community is impacted by that. And so we just ask and beg and plead that you would strengthen these marriages, strengthen my marriage. We need you, Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.